When it comes to maximizing time in the uplands, without fail, Onyx Hunt is my most valuable tool. From planning my next hunt through a new bird cover to navigating in the field, Onyx Hunt is truly with me wherever I go. With detailed mapping and satellite imagery, along with a multitude of map layers from land access to forestry and habitat information and easy-to-use tools to mark, measure, and catalog important information, Onyx Hunt seamlessly integrates digital scouting with boots-on-the-ground time in the field. With offline mapping and Apple CarPlay integration, you are free to explore the wild landscapes our beloved upland birds inhabit. Planning your next move in the uplands begins with knowing where you stand, and for me, that starts and stops with Onyx Hunt. Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Welcome to the Project Upland Podcast, where we discuss all things upland hunting. We plan to take you into some of our favorite bird covers as we talk to the people that hunt them and the organizations that support them. We'll also break down the dogs, guns, and gear used to pursue them, and of course, we'll share the stories that celebrate this American tradition. It's one of those things that you do that, that feels timeless. My dad brought home our first Brittany when I was about 10 years old. The Red Gods are calling, and I must go. These are your stories. This is the Project Upland Podcast, presented by Onyx Hunt. I'm your host, Nick Larson. Welcome to the show for episode number 71. Podcast is presented by Onyx Hunt, creators of the most comprehensive digital mapping system for hunters. Start scouting for the fall hunting season today. 
Download the Onyx Hunt app from the iTunes or Google Play Store and use the promo code PUP20. That's PUP20 for 20% off your subscription to Onyx Hunt. This episode of the podcast also brought to you by our friends at Pine Ridge Grouse Camp, the finest rough grouse and woodcock hunting experience located in northern Minnesota. You haven't experienced grouse camp until you've experienced it at Pine Ridge, and you're going to experience it just a little bit today because this episode was actually recorded at Pine Ridge Grouse Camp with one of their guides, so stay tuned. We're also brought to you by Dogtra Callers. For over 30 years, Dogtra has collaborated with industry professionals to create class-leading tools for e-collar training, GPS tracking, and more to support bird dog owners in developing top-notch dogs. Find out more about Dogtra Callers and their other products by visiting dogtra.com. And by Yukonuba Premium Performance Dog Food. Out in the field, how you prepare determines how you'll perform. With balanced fat and protein to support peak condition in your bird dog, Yukonuba Premium Performance Dog Food enhances strength, energy, and endurance. So when the tailgate finally drops, you and your dogs are ready for anything. Strong, focused, ready for anything. That is a Yukonuba dog. And welcoming back... To the Project Upland Podcast, one of our partners, Gumleaf USA, our buddy Jack Butler over at Gumleaf USA is back on board for the fall hunting season. If you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you'll remember me talking a lot about Gumleaf boots. They are premium, handcrafted rubber boots. Keep your feet dry, warm. I don't wear anything else in the grouse woods. They are my go-to boot. If there's even a hint of moisture in the air, I'm strapping the gum leaves on. They're a fantastic boot. Go to gumleafusa.com and use the promo code PUP10 for 10% off your purchase at gumleafusa.com. Welcome back, Jack. Thank you to Gumleaf USA. Everybody go check them out. And by Gordian Sons Outfitters. When your boots have the proper tread, you never notice how slippery it is. When your hunting jacket features the right liner, your body temperature won't enter your mind. When your shooting vest allows total freedom of movement, you won't think twice about swinging through that quail. At Gordian Sons, they want you to focus solely on the hunt, not the performance of your gear. That's why the Gordy family has personally curated the best-in-class gear from around the globe for their store. Find out more about the gear, guides, the expertise by visiting GordianSons.com. And finally, by Dakota 283 Ken. Kennels. Kennels built to last a lifetime, one-piece rotomold design, frame steel door, everything you and your dog need in a kennel to have a safe and successful hunting trip. Find out more about them at dakota283.com. All right, this week's winner of the Project Upland podcast giveaway is Joey L. Joey sent me a message and also left us a review in the iTunes podcast app. Thank you, Joey. Thank you for sharing the podcast with your son. You are an inspiration to me and hopefully all the other dads out there listening. And we're going to hit you up with a Project Upland t-shirt. Anybody listening could be next week's winner of the podcast giveaway. All you got to do is make a meaningful contribution to the show. Leave us a rating. Leave us a review. And if you leave me a review, send me a screenshot of that via email, Instagram, or Facebook. Any way to message me, send me a screenshot so I know you left a review. Subscribe to the podcast. Share the podcast. Or send us some feedback or a guest suggestion. We'd love to hear from our listeners. Email me at nick.larson at northwoodscollective.com. All right, two quick announcements got to share these and i will admit the first one is a complete tease you're not going to get any of the juice any of the details but i'm super excited about it and i have to mention it we just signed into a project that is going to be one of our biggest undertakings to date it's a film project it involves 
a really, really awesome partner. I cannot wait for this project to come out. If you're a fan of the films that we do at Project Upland and you're a fan of Upland bird hunting, which I assume you are if you're listening to this podcast, you are going to love what we have coming for you. Announcements probably later this year. Stuff rolling out next year. Can't wait. More to come. Stay tuned. Secondly, as of yesterday, we launched one of our latest initiatives, which is projectupland.com on the go. That's right. You heard it. ProjectUpland.com on the go. This is available in podcast format. It's also available on our website. This is for people that would like to or have to listen to the articles on our website as opposed to reading them. You might want to read them and listen to them or choose the best format for you. We are always trying to come up with creative ways to deliver the stuff that you guys and girls want. We're really excited about ProjectUpland.com on the go. You can find it by checking out some of our web articles online or by looking up projectupland.com on the go as a podcast. All right. As I mentioned earlier, today's episode was recorded at Pine Ridge Grouse Camp with Kevin Shepard of the American Bird Conservancy. He works for the American Bird Conservancy. He's also a guide at Pine Ridge, one of the regular cast characters that hangs out there all the time and I go and hang out with whenever I can. Kevin and I had a bunch of fun talking ABC, habitat work, the work that he does for private landowners, habitat improvements. We got into the nitty-gritty a little bit, talking species, habitat, vegetation type. Talked about some really cool grouse hunting stuff. Later on in the episode, we touched on some of his trips out west, how he got into bird hunting. And I should throw in that Kevin Shepard was recently featured on an episode of The Flush. If you've been following along with The Flush this season on their episodes via the Outdoor Channel, Kevin was on the episode in the Boundary Waters up in Ely, Minnesota. They had a great hunt last fall. It was a cool episode. Go check that out if you can. All right, without further ado, let's welcome into the conversation from the American Bird Conservancy, Kevin Shepard. Let's do it. Well, Shep, here we are, man. We're uh, sitting at the bar, Pine Ridge Grouse Camp. Talking to Jerry, this is uh, this is the first ever podcast recorded from the bar of Pine Ridge Grouse Camp, so I'm pretty excited to be here. How you doing? Good. How about you? Not too bad, man. Well, looking forward to this conversation. Joined today on the Project Up Podcast by Kevin Shepard of the American Bird Conservancy. Did I get that right? You did. What do you do for ABC? I am a I am the Golden Wing Warbler private lands coordinator. Um, basically a forester that works uh, with private lands um, in Minnesota in partnership with the uh, Natural Resources Conservation Service. Okay. And how long have you been with ABC? I've been with ABC since 2013. 2013. Okay. Before that, you're a forester by training, right? Yes, I've been a forester for for quite a while. Okay. Um, Before working for ABC, I was a contract forester. Worked uh, government contracts uh, on the Forest Service lands. Okay. So are you born and raised in Minnesota? Yes, I am. This area? Yeah, I grew up probably uh, 25 miles south of here. Okay. So you kind of spent your early days traversing these woods and learning how to bird hunt, shoot stuff, find stuff? Yeah, I know the area pretty well around here. Where did, uh, I, I guess, was it bird hunting that led you into forestry? The other way around, kind of a mix of both. How did that? How did that shake out for you? I think um, you know I'm, I've often thought about that, and I think that uh, I really got interested in forestry when I was probably in grade school. My grandfather 
sat up in a fire tower for the DNR for many years, and I'd just join them when I was, I oh, don't really? know, second, third grade, and just kind of fell in love with the forest and the woods and timber, and uh, just kind of evolved into this. Yeah, I guess. it was it was there early on. Tell me yeah. about the those fire towers, because I... So it's obvious, right? It's a fire tower. It's a big, tall structure. Guys sit in them and watch for fires. It seems very obvious, but beyond that, beyond when I'm driving down the road and I see a fire tower, I can point it out and I can say that's a fire tower, but I don't really know anything else about them. I mean, do you know like kind of about the history of them and kind of how they operated? I don't know all the history. They don't use them anymore. Okay. If they do, it's very rare. Yeah. Basically, back before they had aircraft flying and and searching for smoke and fire they would have they had these fire towers spread across the northern part of the state and when one of them would see smoke they had this great big uh compass dial up in the in the middle of the uh their um little shack up there yeah. and they would dial it in and point it towards the smoke and get on a radio and they they had to have like three of them to triangulate the smoke where they could locate it pinpoint it on a map oh, and then send really? the crews out there to find the fire Wow. Okay. So they so they have like basically a rudimentary compass that they're pointing at, it, and then you have you had to have enough fire towers in the area that could all see the same smoke yes. and triangulate, yep. and and it was it was obviously a response system. To it get, was get people there quicker. Yep. When you see smoke, you dial it in, get on the radio, call in the azimuth that you have, and then the other guys, you know, if it was clear and they could see it, would dial in their azimuth, and yeah. some guy with a big map would uh, draw it out and put a pin on a map that pinpointed the uh, the location of the fire. Figure out where it's at. Yeah, so yep. this might not be in your wheelhouse, but what's uh, what are the methods that we use today? I mean, No, just... they have planes that are flying okay. up all the time. When fire danger is, uh, I guess, anywhere from moderate to high, planes are up looking for smoke, and it's a lot easier for them to find it nowadays. Yeah, so spring season and yeah. when it's... And faster. Yeah. Maybe cheaper. I don't know. Maybe not cheaper. I'm not sure what my grandpa made sitting in those towers, but it probably wasn't a whole lot. Right. Yeah. I suppose with GPS, if you can get a plane over it, boom, you mark it. And exactly. You can get you can get the crews there. Yeah, yep. That's interesting. Again, that's one of those things where, I mean, I, you know, I grew up in in this area somewhat, you know, and I've I've seen the fire towers. I've never been up in one. Obviously, the view has to be pretty cool. Yeah. The one that my grandpa sat in was in Spider Lake out in. I think it's Bull Moose or McKinley Township in western Cass County. Okay, cool. Speaking of fire danger, spring season, you're out in the woods quite a bit. What's the spring been like for you, you know, from the perspective of your girls from Woodcock Hunter? That's what you love to do, so spring's an important time of year for those birds and uh, with weather and conditions and stuff. What have you been seeing out there? Um, I haven't seen any broods yet. I haven't been out in, I guess, brood habitat in the okay. last... Uh, month or so. Uh, I heard a lot of drumming this spring. Yep. I think that was, but I always hear lots of drumming in the spring. Ticks are way down. Really? I think. I think the deer ticks and the, the plain dog ticks are, are very, are way down from I've, that I've seen in the past. Okay. Mosquitoes are up. Deer flies are just starting to emerge. And I think it's going to be a pretty nasty deer Those fly Those are the bad season. ones. Yeah, I hate them. Yeah. 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 So the tick thing, that's interesting because I've been, I mean, you hear a lot of stuff and, and I know in certain areas of the country, ticks are kind of on this like basically straight up incline, you know, as far as population and they're really bad. I haven't heard anybody say that they haven't been bad, but it's been decent around here, I guess. Yeah. I don't, uh, I've 
pulled very few off me this year, and it's it's unusual. It's they've been pretty bad the last probably eight or ten years, and uh, this spring they're down. Do you do anything in particular for prevention beyond just obviously checking yourself over? Uh, permethrin, and um, I use uh, tick gators. That helps quite oh, a bit okay. too. So permethrin sprayed on the clothes. Do you have any other stuff yes. that's where it's baked in? No, I haven't tried that. Just spray it on. Yeah. Yeah, so I had also heard quite a few reports of just basic an- anecdotal stuff, people hearing a lot of drumming. I felt like I did. I wasn't out a ton, but I felt like the few times that I was out and could potentially have heard drumming, I did. Just a couple of weeks ago, the Wisconsin drumming survey was released. I think it was 41% statewide. Basically, the that was the that was the average. The northern the northern se- segment of the state makes up most of that, and so it was it was a pretty significant bump up in drumming. I don't think Minnesotas are out yet. Do you pay attention to those? Uh, I read them when they come out. Right. I haven't I hadn't heard that the Wisconsin was out yet though. Yeah, yeah. It came out a couple of weeks ago, and you know I'm sure I'm going to get the number wrong, but I think it was 41. percent It was a healthy bump. Well, it's great on paper. It's not as high as they were in 17. 17, if you remember, is when we had the crazy high drumming counts, and then they were kind of followed by a fall season that did not meet that expectation for many folks. Do you remember? I mean, yeah, I remember the, when, um, that number came out and right. we all looked at each other and scratched our heads a little bit, but, yeah. uh, and in uh, Minnesota, it was like in Minnesota that year, it was almost 60% yeah. increase in drumming counts, which we've talked about on this podcast before an increase in drumming count is not a census. It's not a population. It's not saying that you're going to find 60% more birds in the fall. It's an indicator of, to the best that we can do really, of breeding males that made it through the the previous season. So it's kind of a recruitment thing. Clearly the hatch and the hatch conditions are what determine a really, really good fall season, you know, generally speaking. I mean, would you agree with that? Yeah. Yeah. By all means. Um, the the drumming males are the ones that are uh, they're they're counting <clears throat> and um they're always around springtime weather rain and temperature will probably have a more of an indication on what the fall is going to be like right and it's been a good one I'm so far I don't uh, I don't see a problem yeah actually uh, Earl and I were looking at he showed me some he had mentioned this to me before but he had he had some printouts of the precipitation levels um and it's it's you get it right on NOAA um, National Oceanic Atmosphere Association, whatever it is, you go on there and you print out the precipitation reports for the whole country, and it'll tell you whether it's above, below, average, or average. Hmm. And what he had was the April and May, and generally speaking, in, in the area of the country that we're in right now, pretty good, about average precipitation. So that was kind of lending itself towards positive sign for, for the fall hunting season ahead. Now, June is, of course, one of the critical months for grouse specifically, and that one's not out yet. So I'd be curious to look at. I haven't, I haven't looked at those much. Do you look at the precipitation reports at all? No, I don't. I don't even look at the drumming counts really <laughs> right. a whole lot. Right. It's uh, if you're in good habitat, you're going to be in birds. Yeah. Um, if the population is high or higher, you're going to find birds in moderate habitat, even low quality habitat. But if you spend most of your time in good quality habitat. You should be just fine. Yeah. I think that's where, you know, the drumming counts, they kind of get, people take them and run with them. And it and it's a number. We love numbers. So numbers get published and numbers get headlines. And there's lots of talk about, you know, how much do people read into that number? And some people, 
not you or myself, but some people, from what I hear, I can't say that I've ever met anybody that actually said this, but some people make their decision on whether or not they're going to hunt that year based on <laughs> the grouse numbers. Now, I, I think, I, I assume I know you well enough to know that that's not how you operate. You're going grouse hunting either way. I'm going grouse hunting either way. It's just a number. It's something we pay attention to. And obviously, long-term trends can tip us off to certain things that are going on. But I do think the, the drumming counts are kind of, they're interesting in that way. And we kind of latch on to them just because of that. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it just boils down to how many flushes you're happy with, I guess. Correct. And uh, it shouldn't take you 40 flushes. <sighs> I mean, it well, shouldn't who shooting, take you, you know, 30. who's shooting? <laughs> yeah. But, uh. But well, it's, not, it's nice to see 40 flushes a day. Oh, yeah, you know, for but, sure. Yeah. Yeah. We'll maybe transition. We'll talk a little bit of bird hunting at Pine Ridge and stuff. But we want to talk about ABC a little bit, American Bird Conservancy. Give me just a, a high-level overview of what American Bird Conservancy does. And then we'll kind of we'll, we'll get down more to the micro level on some of the stuff that you work on personally. ABC is a, it's a nonprofit organization, conservation organization. And uh, I guess our motto or our, what am I trying to say? Mission. Our mission. Our mission statement is um, preserving birds in the Americas. Okay. uh, Conserving birds in the Americas. So we we work in Northern, North America and Central America, South America on any birds that are suffering declines, threatened with with extinction, uh, have uh, degraded or disappearing habitats and our our goal is to uh, bring them birds kind of back to where they should be and, yeah. and attempt to, whether, you know, it's, we do a lot of stuff with, uh, with habitat. Uh, we do a lot of stuff with uh, purchasing reserves in South and Central America for wintering grounds for the migratory birds. We're pretty involved in threats here in, in, uh, in North America, whether it be bird strikes on windows or glass or uh, turbines okay. or, uh, or homes. And cats indoors is one of our big programs. Oh, okay. Cats, cats and birds kill so many birds you wouldn't you wouldn't even believe. Yeah, it's millions. I think I've heard year. that yeah. number quoted, and it's always it always yeah. amazes me the number of, the number of birds that they do kill. Yeah. So that's that's ABC in a in a nutshell. Um, my job with an ABC is to uh, I work with the golden wing warbler here in Minnesota. Uh, we have foresters in. Michigan, Wisconsin, and Minnesota. I think there's seven of us total right now. And we're putting habitat on public and private lands with, within these three states. So that's why, that's why we're going to get micro because, you know, you talk about North America, Central America, South America. I mean, obviously that's a broad, broad geographic spectrum and many species in habitat that, right? And, you know, I've, I've done a little bit of reading on ABC and, and, I believe they're they're kind of at the forefront a lot of the time of of stating like you know this is this species of bird is in serious it's under serious threat it's it's in decline so they're kind of like that almost like that watchdog agency over it but let's talk golden wing warbler because prior to me being more involved with the rough grouse society and American woodcock society and knowing knowing that the habitat of the golden wing warbler has some overlap with the habitat of the woodcock which I think, and you can clarify that for us. Prior to that, I didn't really know anything about the Golden Wing World, but, and I really don't know a whole lot about it. So let's talk about it a little bit. Are you a bird watcher at all? I I'm, mean, I'm you... really not. You know, I, I hunt birds. I've always been fascinated with the rough grouse. That's been part of my, that's part of what led me down this path is because I, you know, I really do. 
I like birds, but beyond the birds that I hunt, I really, I would be, I'd be lying if I said I was a bird watcher and knew anything about them. Okay. The golden wing warbler is a neotropical migratory songbird. That means that it, uh, winters in central and South America and travels up here to, to, to breed and nest in, in North America and then turns around and goes back down to spend its, its, its summers or winters in, uh, down South. So, uh, they're a vermivore, which means they, they're a worm eater. They don't actually eat worms. They eat caterpillars. They eat lepidopteras, uh, okay. uh, spruce bud worm, um, forest tent caterpillars. And there's a plethora of caterpillars that, they, that they're eating out there. And these caterpillars need a lot of vegetation to survive on. So uh, they, they need to have um, good, good forest structure from the ground to the crown. So a lot of leaf structure, a lot of uh, different layers of, of shrubs and uh, intermediate trees and then high, tr- high crown trees. They nest in early successional habitat, which when I talk about early successional habitat, I'm talking about young, shrubby, forested lands that are either regenerating aspen or hardwoods or edges of alder and upland and lowland edges of alder and with really a patchy design to it where it's not a pure solid stems per acre like we think about grouse habitat. Sure. It's a... it needs to have some patchiness to it, so a little bitty, little openings here and there, a lot of forbs that are growing in place, and you know, certainly some dense areas, but certainly some smaller open patches as well. Interesting, yeah. Th- I'm glad you mentioned the neotropical migratory bird, right? Because that's that's the term that I hear all the time, and honestly, I couldn't have told you what it meant. Now that you explain it, it does make sense. There's a whole suite of those species that are ne- neotropical migratory birds, right? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. All the warblers are, or most of the warblers are, I believe. And uh, as opposed to the, the continental migrants, the birds that nest up here and will fly down and stay within our continent and not cross into gotcha. South America. So okay. there, there's a lot of those too. But there are many, many species of warblers out there. And I guess bird watching is a lot like hunting. After a while, you kind of start picking up on bird calls and bird songs and it's hunting without taking is what it is because sure. you have a list and you want to try to find these birds and you go to the habitats that that told them and it's kind of exciting to kind of pull out a, a a new species and and say hey i heard that song i saw that bird you know that's kind of cool i'm gonna put it in my little book and um the next time i hear it i'm gonna say yeah that's uh i've got that one so. right <laughs> yeah no that that's that is interesting and like from my experience, the more I learn about the bird and the habitat, the better hunter you become. So in that same sense, and I think that's the interesting parallel that I think oftentimes we try to we try to draw that and and really show people that Ben Jones, actually the CEO of Rough Grouse, he talked about this where you can have two groups of people, bird watchers and hunters. We might we probably have ninety percent of what we believe in common. And there's just maybe 10% that's a little gray. And maybe they're, you know, maybe they're not anti-hunters. Maybe we're not anti-bird watchers, but it's just that 10% that makes us a little bit different. But boy, if we could come together on that 90%, we can make a lot of good stuff happen. I kind of think that's where ABC kind of fits right in that niche. It's I, I certainly am fitting that niche. Yeah. I mean, um, I've always been interested in birds. When you talk to fanatic bird watchers, or not even fanatic bird watchers, but just your ordinary you know, run of the mill, throw some seeds out in a uh, in their feeder um, bird watchers. 
they always have what they call this uh, the trigger species, which is a bird that got them so excited and so in tune and so really kind of in tune with the birds that they want to start noticing more and more. Yeah, the and gateway and drug. The gate, yeah, yeah, I guess you can you can say that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, birds are that cool. Yeah, the gate the gateway bird basically. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's interesting. I was teaching a uh, a bird watching class this winter at Long Lake Conservation Center. And they schedule it for mid-January. When I got there, it was 25 below zero. I mean, without the wind chill, it was crazy cold. And first we had a little bit of a classroom session. Then we're going to go out and try to find some birds. And I'm thinking, holy cow, are we going to see any birds in this right. This kind of weather? And uh, we got out there, and I'd explain the whole trigger species to them. And at the very, we, we pushed through, we saw some woodpeckers, and we saw some the nuthatches, chickadees, you know, the basic winter species that are out here. And I said, let's go just a little bit further, a little bit further. And people were getting cold, you know, and stomping their feet. And I could see a bunch of red noses under some scarves and stuff. And <laughs> and then all of a sudden, I saw the small little flock of pine grosbeaks. And there was an eruption of pine grosbeaks this winter. They were all over. And they're all of them whipped up their binoculars, and they're they're pretty pretty odd because the pine grosbeak is a nice pretty bird. You yeah. know, most of these guys were from down south; they hadn't seen them before. Pine grosbeak, that's not the rose-breasted grosbeak, right? That's not the rose-breasted. Okay, the pine is a more of a boreal forest. They're kind of a reddish, burnt orange, darker red bird. I see them in the winter a lot. Okay, they they, they kind of come down in the winter, and they they live north of us here. We're in they Min- do. We're in Minnesota. They sure. live north of us, and they migrate down to about this. Don't a lot of the grosbeaks? They kind of migrate to this area. They don't go much further. Yeah, at least the pine grosbeaks. Okay. They're they're nesting up in the more in the boreal forest. Sure. They come down here in the winter. So we're walking back to the center there, and I heard one of the guys in the back tell his his girlfriend. Do you think this pine girl speak can be our uh, our trigger species? <laughs> you know, I'm like, hey, I must have got through to them. So, yeah, I mean, yeah. I hopefully I instilled some interest in them, and yeah. they're going to continue bird watching. So, yeah, I do think, in a much simpler sense, what we're talking about is wildlife, and there's an inherent interest in wildlife for so many people that I think it unites a lot of people. We certainly get in our own silos, and whether we support RGS or Pheasants Forever, you know, we have our, our single species, you know, kind of conservation organization. But, but at the end of the day, it's wildlife and habitat that kind of unites a lot of us. And I think you could probably speak to this. I mean, from what I have seen, and I am, I don't necessarily work in conservation or anything, but a lot of the best conservation work seems to happen when organizations and people partner up, unite make things happen together. That's that's where the kind of the best conservation seems to happen. Exactly. That's uh I remember a quote from Aldo Leopold in uh The River of the Mother of God that says uh something like conservation will ultimately boil down to rewarding the private landowner who conserves the public public interest. And that's kind of what I'm doing in a nutshell right now is I'm working with private landowners who uh who want to um improve their their forests and put a little early successional habitat on the ground. Mainly, I guess, I would say 90% of the private landowners that I work with are interested in game species. Yep. They're not so much interested in goldening warblers. But now that they've engaged me and, and we've worked on their property, um, they send me pictures of goldening warblers. Right, and they right. call me when they see one, and uh, I get all kinds of their trail cameras. I'm getting wolf pictures and oh, yeah. whatever, yeah. you know. But they've all become game 
uh, bird watchers now, and they're pretty excited about conserving this uh, golden wing warbler. Yeah, and that's, I guess, that's kind of the beauty of it, right? Like there's somebody owns a piece of woods, and they appreciate it. They look at the trees. What they see, they appreciate, but there's so much there that they don't see, and then they work with you. And it, and part of that is is probably that's what works against us too, because if you still see the trees, I see the trees on my back 40, they're still there, they're fine, but they don't see those species they were not aware of disappearing and fading away. And that's kind of like, that's where we find ourselves today. There's a lot of forest that's kind of aging beyond that timeline where those species can survive and thrive. And and that's where active management comes into play. Yeah. And it's especially important on private lands because it isn't managed like public lands per se, like a county land department or a state forest where uh, you're coming in and making multiple entries and you're looking for stands that are degraded and turning them over. A landowner may have 120 acres and he could cut it all at once or he could cut half of it at once. What I see mostly on private lands is a landowner who has a couple cover types and maybe one age class or he's gone in 15 years ago or 20 years ago or 25 years ago and harvested all of his mature timber because that's what he thought he was supposed to do. And uh, I get out there and I'm thinking, well, geez, you know, it's too bad because now, I mean, you had great habitat for 10 or 12 years after that cut. And now it kind of, it's degraded and it's kind of boring. It's boring habitat now. There's not a whole lot of game species out there. Timber-wise, it's great. You're growing timber. You're putting fiber on those trees like at a fast rate, sure. and uh, you're going to have another harvest, but it may be when your kids inherit the land. So what I'm trying to do is convince landowners to diversify their age, age classes yeah. on their on their property. So you're a forester. Is it fair to say that, and I guess I should also say that we're talking about Minnesota here. So in Minnesota, we are very fortunate to have a great public land system. We have lots of public land. I don't know if it's 10 million acres or what, but it's a lot of public land. And so a lot of it is managed at the landscape level when when conditions are ideal. But is it fair to say that what drives the management of our land is the wood market? I mean, does the wood market obviously has an influence on the timber that's harvested and cut in this area. Is that the major influence? Is it a very strong one? I mean, what's your take on that? It's pretty major. And I would say it's probably the strongest as any smart landowner would know. It's when the, when the stumpage prices are high, you should cut your timber. And when they're, when it's low, you should, you should hang on to it. But I look at the last big peak we had back in, I think it was like 2000, Seven, two thousand eight, two thousand nine. That would make sense, right in line with the real estate. You know, yeah, exactly. It was. Yeah. Yep. And it crashed about the same time too. Yep. It was the housing market. Yep. So there was a lot of property cut back in those days, and I'm on that kind of property every week or so. I'm on a piece of property that was that was cut back in that era, and the it's landowners pretty are pretty good grouse habitat right about now. It was well it was great. It's it's actually degrading now. Oh, really? It's 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 getting it's getting to the point now where these landowners are thinking, "Oh, geez, what am I going to do now that I got mid-rotation aspen and it's, it's going past prime is what it is." Sure. Yeah. So and I guess I brought that up because I sort of knew that the wood markets play a pretty critical role in influencing the management, but with a private landowner 
yes, that's a factor, but it's such a, a lot of times they're smaller pieces of property. And I think you end up talking to a lot of people that are interested in, they're being influenced by wildlife. They want to, they want to see wildlife. They want to improve wildlife habitat, which is, as you've kind of highlighted, that's different than necessarily just maximizing the dollar return on, on a harvest. And that's the difference between the people who are buying property and managing it now, as opposed to people that owned it back in, uh, like the mid nineties to 2000, uh, those guys owned it and they managed it, but they, nowadays, a lot of people are coming to me and saying, it's not about the dollars anymore. I mean, I want good habitat. I want, I want to pass this legacy onto my grandkids and my kids. And I want, you know, I want to spend my, my hunting seasons on this property and I want to see game. I want to see wildlife. Yeah. And right now we're not seeing it and can you help me? What can we do? Yeah. Yeah. Is there a, cause I know that you guys work with both public and private land ownership. Is there a breakdown? Do you have a, do you have a prefer, I mean, do you try to work with public more so than private or equally, or how does that work? For you? We have a forester. Um, we have one forester in the state that works strictly with private lands. And I think from since 2013, he's created about 6,000 acres of uh, early successional habitat on public lands scattered across 13 counties. He's been pretty busy. He's also burned about 1,200 acres of shrubland, uh, I think, on Tamarack National Wildlife Refuge. Done some work in Wisconsin, maybe 100 acres or so of, of shrub management in Wisconsin. So he's pretty active. And Dwayne and I, Dwayne is our other forester stationed in, uh, in Duluth. I'm in Grand Rapids. He covers kind of the eastern portion of the forested portion of the state, and I cover the rest. So we're looking at probably 15 or 17 counties that we work in, and we've put four to 5,000 acres of habitat on the ground yeah. for private landowners since 2013. And what kind of a, what, just in case we have, you know, private landowners listening in this area, or, you know, they could get in touch with ABC any which way, and I'll, we'll make that available to them. But what kind of opportunities does a private landowner have for habitat improvement working with ABC? Well, I guess the work that I do is kind of specialized or as I'm coming in and, and trying to put some early successional habitat on their property and and not just put some on there, but I'm looking at the next rotation too. So what I want to do is stick some habitat on their property now, but I want to have a window for them to come in in 10 or 15 years and cut some more timber and put some more ha- more habitat on their property and just keep it rolling like that yeah. instead of just having all one age class or all old or all young. Does that kind of answer your question? Yeah, yeah. So you're giving them an opportunity to kind of basically set up a long-term plan. And I know that they can, like, I think there's grants and stuff available for people to work with foresters to set up a land stewardship program. I don't, I don't know the exact terminology. Yeah, there's a there's a bunch of programs. The Minnesota DNR has a forest stewardship program where the, you can have a forester come onto your property and kind of assess your timber land and write up a long-term management plan for you. I'm the guy that comes in and implements that plan and gets it rolling. Or I can write a plan for you as yeah. well. The forest industries have uh, have plenty of foresters that can actually write the plans for you. Oh yeah, as Minnesota well. Forest Industries. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, they can do that. Natural Resources Conservation Service can help you fund what they call a forest management plan. Is it's I think they call it a cat plan. They'll actually almost pay for the entire plan. It takes a while. It's a long 
long process, a lot of paperwork, a lot of applications and, and yeah. whatnot. But there are many opportunities out there for people to get help on their forest. Yeah. I don't own land today. I guess I would, the more and more I get into this, I would consider it a dream of mine to own land. And I would think that managing something, a piece of property long-term like that for wildlife and enjoyment and recreation, all the things, I just, I would think that would give you a really, a real sense of pride, you know? Yeah, I can see it. You're working with people like that all the time. Yeah, I can definitely see it with my, with my clients. They're, uh, they have a lot of pride. I mean, they, I'll show up at their property and the first thing they want to do is show me it, you know? So we jump on their side by side or ATV or walk it or pick up depending on the size of the property. And, uh, and we look at it and we look at the whole thing and they want to show me their property corners for some reason. That's like their, they love to show me their property lines, you know? Sure. I'm like, I don't really care about that. (laughs) I want to see what you got inside that property line. (laughs) Yeah. But, uh, so the second I see that, though, I'm formulating a plan in my head <clears throat> from the get-go when I, when I look at their property, trying to think, well, well, they got this, they got that. What can I do there? And there are many options for putting early successional habitat on your on your property. It's not just going in and cutting an aspen stand. Sure. Um, it's selective cutting of hardwoods, group selections. There's edge feathering along utility lines or roads or uh, even like a food plot. There's uh, patch cutting aspen or cutting smaller pockets. Uh, a lot of people call it the the string of pearls, where you establish a little trail running through your um, your woodlot, and you're just comp- going in every two or three hundred yards and cutting a small opening, okay. and moving on, and just so yep. it kind of looks like a pearl string. So. Yep. Yep. And that's that's a popular one. They like that. Um, landowners are getting away from the. I guess they don't want to see. 50 acres of, of clear cut anymore. Sure. They want it. They don't, they don't um, necessarily, unless you have 500 to 700 acres. And, right. and a lot of my clients do, I've got a couple that have own entire sections and it's, that's like an open palette there. I love getting on those people's properties. Yeah. You can really design some cool stuff. Yeah. That really is. A, it's a relative thing when you're opening up the woods like that. But if you've got, if you've got a lot of land to work with, you know, it makes sense. Now, do you see, for somebody that has a smaller piece of property, can you do those little pocket aspen openings? Those, I should say, aspen cuts, getting aspen to regenerate. You see those, you know, those small pockets, and and get some of the same benefits by not just, you know, wiping out a big section. You can, and I guess the benefit there would be is if they, if their timber isn't at such an old age where they have that opportunity to to do something. Oftentimes, a landowner has all he has is seventy year old aspen, yeah. and I don't have a choice. I have to cut it pretty vigorously sure but if let's say they have 30 or 40 year old aspen i can go in there and do some small cutting and get a little pocket of really successional stuff going and attract some birds to that and golden wings then woodcock and and rough grouse and then 15 years when their woods are getting a little bit more mature come in and do a little bit larger and you've already got a population of species living there they're just going to migrate into that other young stuff and self-perpetuate right. keep uh keep that species on the on the property yeah that's cool you know that's a good segue you mentioned grouse and woodcock you know this is the project up <laughs> podcast we got into the weeds a little bit about talking about management and conservation and stuff but i love that stuff and i'm sure i'm sure some of the listeners do as well but we jumped into that talking about the golden wing warbler and i think you hit on it pretty well as far as sort of the habitat that they prefer they utilize and if we 
did not draw that conclusion then, let's take that a step further and talk about how that habitat benefits grouse and woodcock. Okay. Let's, I want to back up just one second. Let's do it. Okay. What I f- forgot to mention about the golden wing was that they use early successional to breed and yeah. nest. When those birds fledge, when those chicks fledge out of that nest, they move right into the adjacent, I guess, pole timber or mature woodlands to, to raise their brood. So they need to have both of those things on r- really close close by. Yeah. So if I can put a cut adjacent to some older or mid-rotation stuff, that's yeah. a plus. I'm glad you said that because I had heard that from a couple of people. And I think that's a really important point to make because you know we even said the word clear cut a couple of times on this podcast. And that word is in the wrong space and used the wrong way. It, it can be a very polarizing word, right? Clear cut is a, is a silver cultural term. It's, it's, it's used to regenerate timber. Yes. But we're talking about this habitat and for the most part, wildlife needs that diversity and that variety. And the warbler is a really good example of it because it uses the young successional forest and then it hops over to the pole timber, the more mature stuff, much like grouse. Grouse use young successional stuff for nesting and brooding. Later season, they'll move into some of that, some of that more mature stuff. Yeah. And they're finding now that some of the uh, old growth obligate type warblers are actually nesting in the older timber, but when they fledge, they move into the uh, early successional right. stuff and, and raise heard, their broods. I've so heard that as well. There's yeah. give and take, you know, it's a web and flow. All right. So the habitat work that you're doing as far as grouse and woodcock, I mean, we've kind of talked about it really at length. You're creating some, some young successional stuff. You're creating aspen stands, you know, young hardwood stands that's benefiting grouse and woodcock. Do you have a lot of people that come to you Interested in upland birds or not so much? Mostly deer hunters. Occasionally, I've, I've worked with some pretty, I guess, passionate upland hunters as well. Yeah. But for the most part, it's it's deer hunters. Everybody shoots grouse, though. I, I mean, it's not. I'm not saying they ignore them. Right. They they right. Uh, they like to keep their trails mowed and um, and harvest some grouse as they're uh, yeah. putting their deer stands up <laughs> or scouting their woods. Yeah. So that's a storyline we are very familiar with growing up in this part of the country for sure. Uh, man, we've talked quite a bit about birds and birds and habitat, but I'm looking out the window at a couple of setters in your truck there. Introduce the dogs. I have a, right now I have two setters. Hawk's about a seven and a half, eight year old setter and uh, English setter. Butch is about two going on two and a half here pretty soon, I think. And I've had setters since probably about 2000. I think I had my first setter. I've had a handful of them so far. They're a lot of fun. I just, I, I like hunting behind setters. Yeah. Uh, I hunted behind golden retrievers for a while. When I was really young, we had labs. Everybody had labs, okay. you know, when you were growing up. And sure. I thought that was the only kind of bird dog I'd ever have was yeah. was a lab until I was, uh, ended up, uh, I was asked to guide at Rough Grouse Society's um, national hunt a while back. I think 1999, maybe, was the first year I did that. And I went out with this guy from... Detroit, and he had this uh, German short here, and we got in, into an area that I'd been working in. I knew there was a lot of good habitat and a lot of good cutting going on, and we saw so many birds. And that bird, that bird dog, pointed so many grouse. I knew I had to get a pointing dog after that. It was yeah. a, like holy cow, you know, that's a whole new realm. It yep. just brought me from going out with a dog and shooting a bunch of birds to something that just really just touched my soul, you know, and so much fun. Yeah, that's a kind of a journey that I'm on myself, really. I can I can relate to it, but you touched on an important point there where it's just 
you might, but not everybody just walks out of the box, you know, a pointing dog, double gun guy. Everybody's got their own journey and it kind of develops over time. And I, you had talked earlier about sitting up in the fire tower with your grandfather and kind of an appreciation for the woods, but I didn't ask you specifically about how you got into hunting. Did your dad and your grandfather hunt? Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it was, it was, you kind of had an easy, easy intro into hunting and started bird hunting early. And it sounds like it did. Yeah. Labs were a part of it. Yeah. When I, when I grew up, we had labs to hunt ducks, basically. And we'd, we'd take them on a grouse walk once in a while, but sure. that was mainly to maybe find it after you after you shot it off the road, you know? And, um, <laughs> sure. That's kind of the way it was back then. Yeah. Um, but it just evolves, you evolve as a hunter after a while, and especially with setters, because it's, it's always a bumpy road. I mean, it's a good dogs. Some are good. Some are bad. Some you make bad, you know, and eventually you learn how to make them good. Then you know, you don't settle for anything after bad after that. You sure. Know? That's yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I guess. Well, you, you live in an area with pretty healthy wild bird populations. What is your, you know, as you're bringing up these English setters, what does your development program look like? Is it get them on wild birds and hunt them pretty much? That's pretty important. Just to, you know, show them a lot of birds, show them lots and lots of birds, wild birds train a little bit, steady them up to make them honest, but nothing, you can't beat just showing them lots and lots of birds and yeah. let them figure it out. I go out west every fall and it kind of kicks off our season usually is heading out to Montana or North Dakota and uh, running the prairies. And after that, it's just keep showing them birds. Yeah. I think actually we didn't meet up, but we crossed paths when I was heading west last year and you were coming back. When did you start hunting out west? Oh, man. <clears throat> that would have been well, about when I got my first setter, I would say. Yeah. I was, uh, okay. Started in North Dakota with a good friend of mine out there from Dickinson. Um, he was a city forester out in Dickinson and uh, city forester in Dickinson. <laughs> yeah, he, he watched, he watched the tree. <laughs> <laughs> no, he, Dickinson's a pretty cool little town. It's kind of on the edge of, uh, some really good pheasant grounds and some really good sharp tail and hunt ground okay. too. So, um, started going out there a long time ago and hunting with those guys and they showed me the ropes, showed me how to, how to chase sharp tails and I fell in love with sharp tail hunting. It's, they're a lot of fun. Yeah. And they're good for a pointing dog. Oh, yeah. And I think as somebody that spends a lot of time, you know, I watched my first bird dog grow up in the grouse woods to, to get him out west a little bit, to see him kind of run that rolling terrain. I mean, yeah, that's a really, really neat experience. And we're close enough where we can kind of make that a reality pretty quick. It's awesome. Um, how the hell did you get involved with Jerry <laughs> Havel here at Pine Ridge Grouse Camp? Well, sad. how did that work? Um I'd been working for ABC for several months and somebody, I think I was working for another gentleman and he said, you should call Jerry Havel. He has some property out there. He's a bird hunter. He'd probably appreciate you looking at his land and seeing if you can help him out a little bit. I don't remember if he ended up calling me or I called him, but anyway, I, I basically did some projects on his property here and, um, we become pretty good, pretty tight friends since then. Yeah, and you're doing some guiding for him. How many years have you been guiding for him? Oh man, I've guided in the fall. I guide. Um, let's see, when did I start for him? Probably 2015. But I had guided for another outfitter before that, okay. so I've been guiding for about 15 years, and I did it on my own a little bit, on and off too. So you've definitely experienced the Pine Ridge Grouse Camp experience. Have you ever been anywhere else, kind of like this place? No. 
No, there's no place else like this. <laughs> yeah. No way. Yeah, I don't think so. Yeah, he's yeah. got uh, he's got something uh, magical definitely going on here. But I mean, what is it? it's June June twenty seventh? A handful of us met up here today, and we're going to go out and train some dogs here pretty quick and get the dogs ready for the season. And Jerry does a good job. Of, if you're stuck daydreaming about hunting season, spending a day here in the summer is a pretty good way to kind of alleviate that stress and that longing for hunting season a little bit. Yeah, it kind of brings grouse season closer to you when, yeah. you, when you come here in midsummer. Yeah. You can see it. You can see the end of the road, you know, you can and the light of the tunnel, you know, when season opens. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. Let me ask you this, because uh, Project Upland is now presented by Onyx Hunt. So this is a completely guilt-free, shameless plug for Onyx Hunt. I'm a big fan of it. Do you use it? I do. Yep. What? Uh, and I, I think you have an interesting perspective because you're an industry professional. You spend a lot of time on the landscape. Have you worked Onyx Hunt into your daily job? You know, I have. Um, last winter, I was laying out a project on a, on a guy's property down in southern Crow Wing County. And uh, we were trying to determine kind of where the, his property line ends and his brother's starts. And I had a pretty high dollar Tremble GPS with me and okay. I could not get it to give me a good reading. You know, it kept flipping me around back and forth. And uh, I said, well, let me try Onyx Hunt. And I pulled that out and turned it on. And I mean, it, it showed me very close to where I walked down the road to where I thought the line was and I stopped. And my Tremble was 20, 30 feet off. But actually Onyx Hunt was very accurate because I found an old pin and an, some ribbon tied there. No so kidding. It, yeah. Wow. And I don't know if that was an anomaly or not, but uh, right. it, yeah. it was pretty dang accurate. Yeah. Well, I think I think the guys at Onyx, you know, they definitely wouldn't tell you to put a shovel in the ground based on <laughs> based on their I wouldn't either software, yeah. but yeah. they are. You know, I know they're confident in their product, and I I get a lot of value out. Of it. I mean, do you use it for hunting quite a bit? I do. Yeah. yeah. You know, you've been grouse hunting for long enough certainly long enough to to have hunted before on x i mean were you a plat book guy um well i had the probably the benefit of hunting off of aerial photos since i started okay because i had access to them i know how to read them so i've been using you know aerial photos since the 1990s so back before they were available to before we all before had google phones yeah and everything. before yep. before computers or uh, i guess before the internet Maybe not before the internet, but about <laughs> that time. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Well, I have talked to a few grouse hunters that have been doing it for a lot longer than myself, a couple of Cass County guys that you probably know, and they were, that was something that they said, that they had been carrying around printed out aerial photos for a long time. So sometimes I think I'm fancy and I'm smart looking at my phone and satellite imagery, but the smart ones have been doing that for quite a while, but it's effective. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's a heck of a tool for for finding habitat. Yeah. But you need to realize though that looking at an aerial photo is is one thing, but getting boots on the ground and verifying what you got is another and that's the most important thing. So oh, yeah. you got to scout. You got to get on the ground and look at it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, a lot of people are quick to point that out, you know, there's no replacement for boots on the ground. There really isn't. The satellite imagery is a way to to make your boots on the ground time more effective. That's kind of the way that I see it. And mm -hmm. but I think that that's an important point cuz you can see a lot of detail, but you definitely can't see all of it. No, you, you can can't. get into an aspen stand, and I mean, you know this as well as anybody. Some you you can have aspen stand A and B, and they look almost identical, but something's not right about one, and the other one's got birds. Should I elaborate on that? Yes. <laughs> yeah, you should. <laughs> so I'm a firm believer that 
you might want to cut all this out. I don't know, but I'm a firm believer that rough grouse are way more attracted to a fire dependent habitat type than they are to a like a mesic hardwood type where it doesn't have a history of, of burning in the past. So think soils, think sandy soils, think well-drained sandy soils that vegetation grows fast and burns often as opposed to rich, dark, leafy understory with lots of big leaves and uh, deep humus, really rich soils and uh, not a lot of history of fire in the past. So that's really interesting because I've had a bit of small conversation with some friends recently about soil types. And I have kind of my own way that I found myself into that conversation. But so you're siding on the side of you prefer the ones that would have been more fire dependent, yes. dry, sandy soil. From your experience, girls prefer those soil types. They do. So is that sandy soil versus a clay soil type? Yes. Okay. You could look at it that way. Okay. Yes. Yep. And so, um, oh, go ahead. Well, those sandy soils have the history of burning so often, yep. and the species that have kind of evolved to live there, that the plant species are fire dependent now, so they need fire to turn them over, yep. and uh, to just rough grouse is a really successional species yep. who loves, uh, I guess, forest types that have, have uh, lots of disturbance going on them in the, in the past. So, plus a lot of these mesic types seems like they flush out and they grow so fast and the stem density gets so thick in there that they grow out of good habitat faster than, uh, say a fire dependent where you're, you're growing a little bit slower paced yep. and it's just better habitat longer. Very interesting. I didn't stop you earlier, but you you did mention that some of the work that you guys were doing at ABC, you were using fire burning. Oh yeah, we do yep, some... talk about that just a little bit because I think that's that's an interesting one because one end of the spectrum you got raging wildfires, which you know we don't want, we can't tolerate that. We don't want people's homes getting burned down. But at the other end of the spectrum, you've got a real effective management tool in fire. But it's very hard to use because it's, conditions have to be just right. Yeah. It's expensive. You have to have lots of training. You got to have a lot of manpower, you know, on board in case something happens. Get a good fire plan in place. But it creates really good. I mean, that's the way habitat used to be created yeah. back before, you know, man basically came yeah. in on into the scene. That and and beaver activity. That's uh, basically a wind throw. You know, yeah. Those Tornado, are those, those are the three big ones. Yep. yep. So. Anytime you can mimic nature more naturally, like a fire as opposed to a clear cut, you're going to get better habitat. Sure. Before we finish up here, I'll rewind back to the clay soil versus sandy soil type. Okay. And, and you've got, We're all in the weeds here now. You, you've got, you have something. <laughs> you can help me here because okay. where I grew up grouse hunting, I grew up hunting a very small area. Very, And I didn't realize that at the time. I wasn't paying attention to this. A lot of clay soil. Mm-hmm. Very heavy clay soil type. That type of forest has become so familiar to me. That's, you know, when you look at a piece of cover and you say, that looks grousy. Mm -hmm. You just know you have the sixth sense, right? So I look at a clay soil type forest and it looks grousy to me. Started hunting Wisconsin more, started hunting over here a little bit more, seeing a lot of different cover types, more sandy soil types. And I, I look at the sandy soil type forest and... I, it doesn't look the same to me. So for a couple of years, I was completely thrown for a loop. I, you know, I had some conversations. I talked to people and, you know, most people just said, get in there. You know, the birds are in there. And I haven't spent enough time in them yet to really get my confidence to the same as the clay soil type. But if I'm driving down the road and I see clay soil type on one side and sand on the other side, I'm going in the clay, but <laughs> you're going on the sandy side. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I guess uh, 
don't know, lost my train of thought there. Well, so. well, really, I mean, the kind of the moral of the story is there's birds on both sides. There are. You definitely, you have come to prefer that, that sandy soil. So, like, do you guys get scrub oak over here? Or not so much. Well, as I see that a lot in northern Wisconsin, so scrub oak is not a species. You know, there's right. A, it's just so there's you know, if you're looking at the species of oak that grow in Minnesota, you have red oak, you have pin oak, you have bur oak, and you have white oak. Yeah. So I think what you're when you're looking at what you say are scrub oak is yep. just maybe a slow growing stand of oak that's kind of uh, yes. yeah, okay. Yep. So, yeah. Pin oak can be thought of as scrub oak sometimes. And it's definitely very fire dependent because uh, it's it's in the red oak family, grows on a lot of sandy soil yep. and rock outcrops. Yeah. But uh, so you're looking at maybe you're talking about Douglas County. Yeah. You know, if I'm in Northwest Wisconsin, you know, there's just there's a lot more sandy soils, and mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of red pine, red pine or jack pine plantation kind of stuff, and I've I have found birds in there, you know, historically, but. Mm-hmm. It just, it doesn't look the same to me as, you know, a clay soil type aspen forest with a bunch of hazel brush and alders and, and all that stuff. But So how do you hunt it? What do you, I mean, when you, you drive, let's say you're driving on a two track and yep. you see uh, some scrub oak on your left. I mean, what do you, do you get out and start hunting it? You know, the, you? when I see the, I'm using air quotes here, the scrub oak, that stuff, I actually want to start hunting it more because I've talked to enough people that have kind of told me. There's plenty of birds in there. And I hunted some of it when I was in lower Michigan a couple of years ago, flush birds in there. I actually haven't been hunting a lot of that recently because those oaks hold onto their leaves so long. It's like late October, early November, and I drive by a low oak stand and there's still full leaves. And it's like, why would I hunt there when I can go hunt an aspen stand? That's Because you're thinking about shooting instead of hunting Correct. right there. I Correct. Mean, so. Yep. Yep. I'm thinking about, I'm thinking yeah. about maximizing the shot opportunities that there you I'm go. hopefully going to get. Yep. But. Give it a walk sometime. Get on the edge, you know, get that's on the swamp edge and, yep. and see what you find. Yeah. That's definitely what I need to do. And that's the advice I've been given in the past is get in there. Mm-hmm. Don't avoid the bigger stuff too. If that scrub oak is growing next to a, you know, a pole size or a mature oak stand, walk through the oak stand, the big stuff, yep. and see what happens. Yeah, I think you'd be surprised. Cool. Well, this has been fun, man. I Thanks. appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. If people want to learn more about American Bird Conservancy in general, I would imagine it's AmericanBirdConservancy.org. Yeah, AmericanBirdABC.org. ORG would probably bring you right to our okay. website and okay. you can track me down looking through the, uh, the employee, uh, listing, or you could, uh, if you're in Minnesota, stop at your, uh, if, if you're in Northern Minnesota, Northern Wisconsin or Northern Michigan, swing into your local NRCS office okay. and, uh, and ask for, uh, an American Bird Conservancy Foresters and okay. we'll, we'd be glad to come out and look at your property and, and, uh, appraise it for you and, See what uh, see if we can find some habitat opportunity on your property. Cool, right on, man. We'll be seeing you here at Pine Ridge uh, later this fall. What, what do you say we go out and run some dogs? Definitely, let's do it right now. All right, thanks, Chef. Yep. Thank you for listening to the Project Upland podcast presented by Onyx Hunt. The podcast is also brought to you by Pine Ridge Grouse Camp, Dogs or Collars, Yukonuba Premium Performance Dog Food. Gumleaf USA, Gordian Sons Outfitters, and Dakota 283 Kennels. Don't forget to leave us a rating, leave us a review, subscribe to the podcast, and share the podcast post. You could be next week's winner of the Project Upland Podcast giveaway. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll catch you on the next episode.
Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app. Join millions of other hunters who trust Onyx Hunt to find more game, discover new access, and hunt smarter. Onyx Hunt shows you nationwide public and private land boundaries. They've got topographic and 3D maps. You can track your route, location, and elevation profile. You can save maps for offline use and take Onyx Hunt with you wherever you go. The most comprehensive hunting tool you'll own Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your next Onyx Hunt subscription. Know where you stand with Onyx. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.